This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Reese Bowen. Reese is the New York Times bestselling author of two historical mystery series, as well as the number one Kindle bestseller in Farley Field and the international bestseller, The Tuscan Child. I'm getting hungry thinking about Tuscany. She joins me today to discuss her career and latest novel, Where the Sky Begins. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Reese. Hello. Thanks, Mike. Good to well, be with you. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Uh, Reese. I, I will ask you uh, my opening question, which is the same for everybody, which is Reese. Where does your story as an author begin? Uh, well, my mother tells me that I wrote I wrote my first story when I was four, so I have to say quite a long time ago. Um, I I think as a, as a, I've always been a writer. Um, not you know, it never occurred to me that one would be a writer as a profession. But as a small child, I was always somebody else. You know, I was always playing at being a flying fairy and Patsy of the circus and all these things. And then when I was a teenager, I decided I wanted to be a movie star. So um, I wrote all these scripts for myself. So that when I was a movie star, I'd have scripts that would make me look very good. And they were all terribly tragic and they all ended up with everybody dying and sobbing and things. But um, they, uh, I, I suppose that, you know, writing short stories and everything. And then I, right after college, I went into the BBC and I was in BBC drama and I'd be working on a play and I'd think, um, if I'd written this play, I wouldn't have ended it this way. So I went home and I wrote a play and with the bravado of a 22 year old, I walked down the hall to the head of drama and I said, I've written this play. And about a week later, he called me in and he said, we really like this, we're going to do it. So wow, I've been, I've been pretty much um, a published author since then. That could have gone the other way, though, right? I mean, you yeah. know, who oh, is yeah. this 20 something year old person who thinks, you know, they could yeah. write a play and look yeah. at that? I mean, it worked yeah. out I mean if he'd said, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, you know, go back to being a studio manager. That's what you do well. Then, yeah, I mean, 
I suppose if you're a writer, you have to write. And I suppose I would have written anyway, because uh, I'm not good at not writing. <laughs> I, 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 always I always have more ideas than I have time for, you know. And uh, what happens is I, I write at the moment, I'm doing two and a half books a year, which is crazy. Um, but um, uh, I find that in between times, when I'm supposed to be letting my brain rest and percolate, um, I, you know, I, if I'm not writing, I think, oh, should I go down to my office? Why aren't I in my office? And it, it's, you know, it's it's part of my life. So, yeah. uh, I have to ask because uh, you you mentioned your mother uh, recalled you writing your first story at four. Do you have any idea what that story was about? And is there a copy of it somewhere? <laughs> no, I'm sure there isn't. Um, I do know that I wrote a poem when I was four because my mother copied that down. I didn't write it. I, I created a poem. And it was, color is a lovely thing to help our sight. Blue for sky, green for grass, brown for the road on which we pass and black for night. So even then I wrote in five lines, you know, I was never, I've never been a, a normal child in any way. <laughs> um, you know, uh, when I was at school, I think, you know, my whole writing, luckily my whole writing ability was not stifled by the teachers at school because, um, you know, we'd have to write a poem on spring and someone else would write, you know, flowers are opening, lambs are now at play, blah, 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 winter's gone away. And they go, oh, that's lovely. And I'd write, you know, what is spring but a crushed daisy beneath the foot of you know and they'd go oh oh no i don't think so <laughs> um well tell me what what drew you to the bbc after after school um uh well it was after after college and i think um i've always wanted to do you know i wanted to i wanted to act um actually you know i i sort of as i say i saw myself as a movie star and i had to realize i think probably during college that i wasn't good enough um, you know, I'm, I, that's why I think I'm a good writer because in my, in my, in my brain, I know what I want to say and what I want to express. And I don't think it came out well enough in, in, um, in actuality. So, you know, I, I did some parts in plays and I remember thinking, you know, I'm not very good at this. So, um, going into BBC drama was obvious an obvious thing to me and it was just so fabulous in those days that was everybody had the huge budgets and we got the top stars and I'd work with you know work with these very famous people and the really top ones the ones like Sir John Gilgood you know were so nice they would come up to me you know young woman and say I don't know very much about this medium will you tell me if I'm doing something's wrong and then the ones who just become a movie star would come in and go, here I am, darling, stand out of the way, you know? So um, it was a fabulous, fabulous place to work. Um, yeah. And um, perhaps I shouldn't have left, but um, <laughs> it was, um, I got lured down to Australia by, I met the head of Australian broadcasting and he said, you can have a job with me anytime you like. And um, that was very luring because the weather in England was horrible. So I packed my bags and went to Australia. Um, and what was that like? How was how did you find Australia? Oh, I loved it. I mean, uh, yeah, it was it was sunny. It was relaxed. It was good food. Um, and um, I probably would have stayed there, except that I met my husband and he was on his way to California. So um, but the ir the irony of that was that I wrote good letters home. So my brother went down to Australia to join me. And then my parents went down to Australia to join him. So the whole of my family was in Australia for many years. And my brother's still there. So I've been a frequent visitor, even though I don't live there now, because 
I still like the food and the sunshine. Yeah. And then now, so did you wind up moving to LA with your, with your um, future husband? San, San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. see that, that's my bias. We're talking yeah. entertainment and I go right to LA and, and you yeah. specified yeah. California. So, and, yeah. and so, so what was life like in San Francisco? Um, well, it was nice. I mean, you know, California was lovely. Uh, um, right from it was funny when we left Australia, I said to I said to John, I'm so sad to be leaving here. I mean, I love these eucalyptus trees. <laughs> we get to San we get to San Francisco, and of course there are there are eucalyptus trees everywhere. So, you know, it wasn't that different. And uh, you know, I live in I live in Marin County, which is very beautiful. And um and so I've 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 lived in a very nice place ever since. So I can't that is beautiful. I was just in Petaluma last week. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Last weekend, actually, yeah. We we live in San Rafael. We live actually on a oh. hill outside San Rafael. So I have a view of Mount Tam, and um, I, so I'm I have nothing to complain about. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country. I love it out there. Your yeah. your taxes are pretty high, but uh, other than that, it's uh. Well, yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I live half the year in Arizona now because we go there in the winters, but um. Uh, and I could be an Arizona resident, except my husband absolutely freaks out about changing, but it, it would make, make, sure, make a huge difference in my taxes. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, um, well, tell me, when did you publish your first novel? Um, well, I've written other things under another name. Uh, so I did, I did children's books. I did young adult books. I did some adult historical romances. I did some sagas. Um, but then it occurred to me, I think it was when I discovered Tony Hillerman, um, and he blew me away with the way he could uh, create a time and a, a place. The fact that he could take the reader there, and I thought, that's what I want to do. So I started writing mysteries. In, the first one came out in 1997, and um, I, I set my mysteries in the mountains of North Wales that I know very well. Um, and the, my hero was Constable Evans. So that was when the Reese Bowen and Mysteries came about. Um, and since then, the book that comes out this November will be number 50. So I've been quite uh, productive since then. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, what can you share with us about Where the Sky Begins? Where the Sky Begins. I notice you can't see it on the shelf, so it should go there. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, where the Sky Begins. There it um, is. Yes, it's the most lovely cover, don't you think? It's just nope. very, very, very evocative. It, so, it, it's it's drawing me, and I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So it's my it's my third World War II book. Um, the first, no, my fourth World War II book. In Farley Field was the first, and then the Tuscan Child, and then last year's the Venice Sketchbook, and now this this one's very different. My other heroines have been educated upper class women or men. Um, and she is someone I hadn't tackled before. She's um, a London woman, uh, uneducated, used to a life that's very small, uh, you know, in every way. I think the title, Where the Sky Begins, is because when she's evacuated to the countryside, for the first time in her life, she sees the sky, this huge sky, after these narrow streets of London with the smog. Um, so she's an uneducated woman who's always hoped for more. She's always had a feeling for beauty that she's never been allowed in her life. Um, and so 
her, it, the war happens. Her husband's gone off to war. He's been called up into the army and her house is bombed and she's buried in the rubble. So at the beginning of the book, she is pulled from the rubble with nothing. And to me, this is writing a book about rebirth. She's literally reborn because she's born, she's pulled out of this rubble with nothing. And then what do you do if you don't have like loving family to take you in? Where would you go in a war? I mean, obviously it's happening to so many people every day. She's in hospital and she should have stayed in hospital, but they've got people coming in who are much more severely wounded than she is. So she's kicked out of the hospital. She's put in a convent for a while. And then they say, we're going to send you out to the country because obviously you need to recuperate somewhere. So she's evacuated with some children out to the countryside. And for the first time, it's the east of England. It's this flat, very, very flat countryside, rather like Holland, where they drained the, drained the land to make new fields. So you're below sea level with these dikes of water and, and flat fields for miles. And she sees this huge, enormous sky, and it's just overwhelming. And she's put in this very nice house run by a very snooty, aristocratic woman who says to her, um, when you've recovered, we'll have to see what your duties will be. And then we see Josie and we see she's always had this, this spark. And she says, um, I don't mind helping out, but I ain't no servant. Um, and you see she's gonna stand up for herself. And gradually she builds this, this, not only this new life for herself, but she makes life better for other people. Um, she's just a very spunky person who, and, and just believes in goodness. And it, it's nice to see her gradually grow as a person. And um, the, the title I was going to give this book, which was shot down, unfortunately, was The Tea Shop at the Edge of Eternity, because she's in this lovely countryside and you'd think you'd be quite safe out there. And the first night there, she hears this horrible roar and she finds that this house is right next to the runway of a bomber base. And every night these men take off in these huge planes towards Germany. And every morning, only half of them come back. Wow. So she realizes, you know, in a war, nobody's safe. And she's very conscious of life and death all the time. And her story turns when she sees a young airman who's sitting on the wall of her house. He's got, it's pouring with rain and his bike's got a flat tire and he's got to wheel it half a mile back to the base. Uh, and she invites him in for a cup of tea and he sits in the kitchen and he looks around and he says, this is just like home. And she realizes that what these really young, they're 18, some of them, what these young men need, it's not um, beer in the pub to get drunk. They need that tiny slice of home. So she persuades after much, many ramifications, she persuades the woman who owns the house to open up one of the rooms as a tea room and um, where these young men can come. And this tea room becomes like an epicenter drawing in the people from all around there. And it just shows what one person can do if they put their mind to it. Of course, that's a small part of the story. There's also a pilot that she meets and her own husband, who is a, a really um, a masochistic bully who she thinks has gone off to war, but comes back. And so, I think the whole of this story shows that she uh, she takes one step ahead and then she's pulled back two steps, but she keeps on going um, until what she's asked to do becomes bigger and bigger. It's like, as you can tackle this one thing, we're going to give you something even worse. Yeah. And, and she ends up really um, 
being asked to unmask a traitor, um, which is, you know, uh, um, an enormous thing to do, which, which she does. What, um, I mean, you mentioned this is your fourth novel set uh, in World War II. What, what has you coming back to World War II? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, first of all, uh, it's now become history. You know, it was too, like the way we don't feel we can write about Iraq or it's been hard to write about Vietnam because it's too close. Um, it's now become history. The last people who fought in that war are dying. And I think if we don't have books about it, we'll forget about it. Also, it's the last occasion when we had a really good feel for, for good and evil. We knew that this was good versus evil. And if we didn't stop evil, it would swallow the world. And so everybody did their part willingly. Everybody signed, joined up for the army and, uh, you know, struggled hard with, you know, rations were really terrible. The amount of food you could eat in World War II and you couldn't get clothes and you couldn't do this. But people did it because they knew they had to. So... Um, I think I enjoy writing about this struggle of good and evil. The other thing too is all the books that came out after the war were all books about men doing heroic deeds. You know, here I am bombing this and here I am on the PT boat and everything. And then gradually we realized that the quiet heroism of women, that women did all these things that had never been lauded, never been given medals for. You know, women were dropped as spies behind enemy lines in France and their chance of survival was 25%, and yet they still did it. And um, women flew these great big planes from the, from the place where they were manufactured, flew them to the air bases, or, or actually flew damaged planes back to be refurbished. I mean, they did all these things and nobody sort of said, you're a heroine. So I, I think it's been really nice for me to show the role of women and how they, they were quietly brave throughout the war. Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, if you look at any of the movies that came out after World War II that are about World War II, yeah. you know, it's it's the hero guy, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, and yeah. you, don't, you, you don't hear that other story, that other part of the story. Yeah. So it's very important that you're, uh, you're telling uh, another side of that story. Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, there are so many stories. First of all, it's a world war. So anywhere you go in the world, the world someone was affected by world war ii so you've got the stories of the invaded the invaders you've got the story from german point of view from someone who doesn't want to fight in germany and what happens to him you've got this point of view of the jewish people and how they were persecuted you know you've got you could go on telling these stories forever and never and never repeat i mean the four i've done in farley field was um, a, a great house in England, and it was a story of a, tr a traitor among the British aristocrats. And then the Tuscan child was about uh, a British airman who crashes in Tuscany, and a local woman who risks her life to hide him. And then there, and then his daughter later on trying to find out what happened to the big secret between them. And then the Venice sketchbook was a woman who was trapped in Venice and asked to spy for her country and what happened to her. So, you know, they're all so different. You could just go on forever, really. Yeah, yeah. No no limit to the stories you could tell yeah. from that era, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm curious, as, as I always say that this um, uncorking a story is, is really about uncorking the author's story. So I always like to know. Yeah. Now, the story behind the story. So to do that, I'd like to get into pop culture a little bit. And I'd be curious to know, Reese, what, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were kind of growing up or, or even now? What, what do you like to watch? Um, 
Well, I'm, uh, I suppose I, I'm quite boring because I like to watch PBS. I like, I like travel shows. I like, um, uh, I like science shows. I like the silly British comedies, you know, that the, the, I suppose it's my, my, my era, but I, I love those, you know, those old fashioned British comedies that they, they have on PBS. And of course I love mystery. I love Poirot. I love Miss Marple. I like all the British mysteries. I've watched those all the time. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I always have, you know, I've always been, I've always been a fan of the mystery genre, which is why I started writing mysteries. So, yeah. so, you know, you, you, you've put Poirot on for me and I'm quite happy. <laughs> Did you see, uh, what was the, the latest film um, they made? Oh my gosh, I can't remember it, but I think it was Poirot. He was the, the, the or, murder on the Orient Express. Was that was that yeah, it, or was yeah, the one the, about a riverboat? I can't remember. Oh no, I haven't seen Death Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile is what I was I thinking. Must, I, I was curious. On, I must get that on Netflix. Yeah, I, uh, no, I, that's one I haven't seen. I missed that for some reason. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, Did, I, you don't go to the movie theater too often. Well, I haven't been during the pandemic too often. I've been a couple of times recently, but. Um, I can catch that up on Netflix, I expect. Yeah. Fair enough. Did you see Knives Out by any chance? I did. Loved that. That yeah. was very great, I had to watch it twice fun. because there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of moving pieces to that one, but that was that yeah. was great. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. How about music? What do you like to listen to musically? Um uh well, classics. I I, I love the classics. I I love opera. Um uh, and and uh, and I'm not madly into pop music. I, I was a huge fan of the Beatles, and I was a huge fan of ABBA. And since then, you know, everything's become uh, not as tuneful as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I love ABBA too. We we yeah. raised our kids on ABBA. Yeah. Because um, I didn't want to listen to any of the the children's yeah. music. And yeah. um, then my daughter Maggie, she just got back from Sweden. She she's a huge ABBA fan. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, they did a tour. They did a, a tour with them um, with holograms of themselves on stage. And I I'd love to have seen that. That would have been yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, that we drive between here and Arizona, and and when I'm driving, I always put on Mamma Mia and I sing along with it. You know, because <laughs> keep, keeps you awake for all those hours. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm one of these people who believes that we all have an inner child inside of us. And I'm curious to know um, what ways, if, if at all, do you feed your inner child? Um, I still like to play, I suppose. Um, when my when my granddaughters were really little, like two and three, um, we would play this game and I would chase them all over the play equipment. You know, I, I would be the big bad wolf coming after them or something. And one of the other women at the park said, you're the only grandmother I've seen who climbs up the climbing wall. Well, well yes, of course. Why not? You know, so I know, yeah, it I makes me want to have grandchildren. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah, um, it's much better than having your own child because you can send them back when they get cranky. You know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but no, I, I do. I do. I think I do like to play. And sometimes I have to re remind myself of my age because. Um, you know, I'm sort of a very active person. We just came back. We had the whole family. Um, I, I rented a house on the beach in San Diego for a week. And um, during that week, I was boogie boarding, kayaking, playing cornhole, um, you know, pretty much pretty much everything. I'm, I'm really good at boogie boarding, I should say, you know, I'm that sounds like fun. I, I wish I was on that vacation with you. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think, you know, if you if you do like and I also I like, you know, I like doing creative things, crafts and and, and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't think I'm boring at all, which is nice. Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> um, what ways, if at all, has um, writing been therapeutic for you? Um, 
I would say during the pandemic, it really was, um, uh, it was hugely therapeutic because I was writing at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was so horrible and we didn't really know if, you know, it was going to wipe out half the world. Um, stuck at home, not allowed out except, you know, to go for a little walk. Uh, I was writing the Venice sketchbook. And so I spent many times, a lot of time in Venice. And all that time when I'm writing it, I'm back there. You know, I'm thinking, I look at all my photos and everything and like, oh, I remember that bridge. And if you went over that bridge, you could see, oh, yes. And so there I was, I was in Venice all the time, which was, which was a wonderful experience wonderful escape and also I write a series called, with, uh, called the Royal Spinus books and she is 35th in line to the throne in the 1930s and they're very light and funny so when I write those um, I'm chuckling all the time I will call out hey John listen to what Queenie just said Queenie's the awful maid in it and um, so I think you know I'm laughing as much as I hope my my readers will laugh when I write that. So they're they're therapeutic in another way, and that you know I get to laugh. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Sounds like fun. Um, how about the blank uh, the blank page? If you're if you're intending to write something and you're staring at a blank page, what what emotions do you experience in that circumstance? Um, you know I don't often stare at a blank page um, because what what I do is uh, every morning. I, the first thing I do is read through the pages I wrote yesterday and I edit them. Um, so, I, I, so I'm not staring at a blank page because I've always got something to go on. You know, I'm picking up. I try not to end a day at the end of a chapter where something's complete. So I will leave it in the middle. So the next day I'll read through and I'll pick up that dialogue and go on with it. So it's very rare that I, I stare at a blank. You know, there are, obviously there are times in a book that are hard going. There are times when the story just leaps ahead and you're typing so fast you can't keep up with it. And there are other times when things have to be done. Like if you're writing, if I'm writing something that's some sort of uh, mystery, there's going to be times when people have to be interviewed and where you have to take the various steps before the sleuth can put together a conclusion. And some of those, you know, you don't want them to be boring ever so they can't be boring to me so that you might think how am I going to how am I going to tackle this and and that also there are times when I know there's a really good part coming and I want to get to that and then I have to make myself now you can't rush ahead too much to get to this good part you have to be very patient um so but um I think I'm very lucky in that I've never really stared and had writer's block um I'm always excited to get to the next bit and you know I think it was Robert B. Parker who said, um, uh, if you invite a plumber to your house and he takes the pipes under the sink to pieces and he looks at them and he says, um, I'm sorry, I can't go on. I have plumber's block today. Um, you know, you have to say the same thing with writer's block. It's I'm, I'm a professional writer. What I do is write and there will be days when it's harder. I give myself when I'm writing, I give myself a minimum of about 1500 words, about five pages a day. And I'm not allowed to leave until I've written that. And some days that goes really easily. And, um, you know, I go ahead and I maybe do 10 pages that day because I'm excited and I'm zooming ahead. And other days it's really like, you know, pulling teeth. I have to get up and walk around the room and get myself a cup of coffee and throw something in the laundry. But if I can't walk away for the day until I've done those five pages, I will do them. And there are days when I think this is absolute rubbish. What am I doing here? 
And then the next day when I read through it, I go, well, this wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. Yeah, I can do something with this. So, um, you know, it's it's like any other profession. There are good days and there are bad days. Yeah, I like that that suggestion of not ending at the end of something, kind of mm-hmm. leaving something in the middle, because you're right. I mean, that way you can pick up right where you left off versus, you know, starting another chapter that, you know, has to have a beginning, middle and an end. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've been sort of in, in the publishing world for, for a long time. Um, what are some lessons about publishing you've learned the hard way or um, have you seen it changed? Uh, well, the, the big change to the whole publishing world has been Amazon. You know, it's because first of all, you can self-publish very easily on it. And so I think it's made it harder for the reader to distinguish what is good and what is bad because the thing with a book that I write is it goes through, my agent reads it, and then my editor reads it, and then the copy editor reads it, and then the proofreader reads it. You've got all these eyes on it who are going to suggest ways to make it better. Um, and um, if you self-publish that book, it, you know, you've no way of knowing if that's a good book or a bad book. And so I think it's rather sad that someone will find one of these self-published books for 99 cents and so they think, well, this is a good cheap book and they buy it. And then they go, oh, mysteries are terrible. I won't read another mystery because this is really awful, you know. And then you've you've wrecked it for people who actually write good books. Um, so, you know, that that's one way. And of course, the, the whole, you know, the whole ebook Kindle thing has meant that it's so much easier to to get books. I can't tell you how often I will see a book I've, I've been hearing about. Um, and then it comes up on Kindle and I click, I buy, buy with one click, click, and there it is. It's in my Kindle right there, you know. Um, so I can go on vacation and I've got 20 books to read, which, uh, I th- you know, I think that's fabulous. So it's made, it's made, it's opened up the publishing world in a big way. And of course, for me, I have to say, you know, this, this book is um, Lake Union, which is Amazon's sort of big book arm. Yeah. So, you know, this, suddenly my books in comes out and it's all over the world. and. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it's amazing that, 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 you know, the number of people like, oh, it's in it's being published this week in Estonian and um, Macedonian and all these languages. I really didn't know they existed before. So it's kind of fun that you imagine someone sitting in one of these very far off countries reading your books. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Um, and if you could go back in time and give your younger self some words of advice, what would you tell uh, a younger a younger Reese? A younger self. Um, uh, I suppose always to believe in yourself is one thing um, that the, there are going to be times when uh, when you're really lucky and times when you're really unlucky. And I think you know that's another thing about the publishing industry. There is this element of luck the whole time. You know, I had friends, a friend who came out with a fantastic thriller that was supposed to be released the week of 9-11. So, of course, you know, nobody's first of all you know the world is at a standstill nobody's going to buy a thriller um and um it was about terrorists you know nobody's going to buy a thriller about terrorists so a book that was a really good book was doomed um and then on the other hand you can have a book that comes out at just the right time and everybody's talking about it and so you know there's there's that element of luck in publishing but um uh i would say always every book you write has to be better than the one before 
Um, it's just, you know, don't ever rest on your laurels. Don't ever say, oh, this is great. You know, I'm selling a lot of books. It really doesn't matter what I'm selling next time because everyone will buy it. That's, you know, I've, I've always, uh, I've won a lot of awards and that really, that really hangs over my head that this, this book has to be worthy of someone who wins awards. Yeah. Yeah. A little, little, little more pressure on you. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking to Reese Bowen. She's the author of many books, including uh, the her latest, Where the Sky Begins. Reese, this has been a fun conversation. There's the cover. Um, if, uh, if people want to get a hold of you or reach out to you, do you have a website or social media? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, my website is just simply reesebowen.com. I am on Facebook. My author page is um, author Reese Bowen, so Facebook slash author Reese Bowen. I'm on Twitter at Reese Bowen. I'm on Instagram, author Reese Bowen. Um, you can find all those on my webpage. And if you go to my webpage, it's just a, a, a thing to click to contact Reese. So you can do that very easily. And very I love, to hear, you know, I love to hear from people too. It's really, uh, that's one of the nice things about the internet. You know, you get a letter from someone saying, I'm writing to you from Sweden. I'm writing to you from, you know, anywhere in the world. It's, it's just, it's very nice. It's uh, a great feeling that you have this world brought together by books. Well, there you have it. Listeners, uh, reach out to Reese. She wants to hear from you. Uh, mm -hmm. Reese has been a fun conversation. Thank you for joining me on Uncorking a Story. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I've had fun. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.